Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. Tom Oldenburg admits to having an itch for citywide office, but he says he chose to run for a third term as alderman to help with transition to 14 members of the board. He's well positioned to be a foil to the newly empowered progressive bloc at City Hall, but he says he expects there will be areas of agreement as well. The alderman from the second ward joins me next on Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the definitive show about politics in the St. Louis region. I thought this was an opportunity to have a new voice in that seat. And the decisions I make in county government allows me to help people in large groups, and I enjoy it. We're not using it as a wedge issue. We're using it more as a, you know, what's right for the region conversation. We need to know what the issues are in our communities in order to address them. Because people want to see change, and they want to see a St. Louis that works for everyone. Some days I need to credit, most days I don't, but most importantly, I have to be able to control how this environment is going to evolve. We knew that in races that, that have multiple candidates, the only way you win is in the streets. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Rachel Lippman. Joining me in our studio today is... Tom Oldenburg, Second Ward Alderman. This is Tom's second time on the podcast. You were last on in 2017. What has changed for you since then and what remains roughly the same? Gosh, 2017, I had uh, two children. Now I have four children and um, still uh, grinding it out in local government and uh, trying to help out the community. And if I remember correctly, you have not only added two children to the mix, but a golden retriever puppy. So it's now it's essentially five children. Very good point. Daisy would like you to have brought that point up. We do have a, a dog now that is 18 months old. You are running in the new, or ran in what is now the second ward. How much of that was new territory for you coming out of the 16th? A good portion of it was new. So uh, this new second ward encompasses all of St. Louis Hills, which was all in the old 16th ward. Uh, but the new uh, geography of the second ward includes all of Princeton Heights, which only included six square blocks in the old 16th ward a good portion of Boulevard Heights, which is immediately to the south, and also a, a chunk of Bevo. So a pretty big ward now. What was the learning curve in figuring out how to run and campaign in some of those those new spaces where you may have, you know, indirectly or tangentially known about the issues, but not specifically what concerned people there? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we, we tend to be hyper-local, and we were, it was even worse uh, so when we had 28 uh, micro-wards. Um, but there was always, I think, some collaboration between neighboring alder folks on, on how we work together on an issue that where it pops up on the borders. Uh, so it wasn't incredibly new territory uh, to sift through that because I was aware of sort of the periphery of, of what was the old 16th ward. Uh, and it was a matter of just making sure we got to folks, talk to folks, understand where the assets are, the community assets, and, you know, where the liabilities are, the challenges that we need to work on. Take me through your decision of deciding to go for aldermen on a downsized board as opposed to maybe higher office. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always the the uh, the itch in the back of my mind to uh, stay, you know, 
as an urbanist and go citywide. I don't have any aspirations beyond, um, you know, the city of St. Louis. Uh, that is a fact. And I thought it would be helpful to, you know, to stay in an aldermanic seat uh, to go through the transition of what is an, effectively a new government. And I thought it would be uh, less rocky uh, to have a complete newbie in uh, what would be a much bigger ward. What is it about being an alderman, especially in a larger ward, where you figured, okay, I'll best serve my residents by staying in here rather than putting, you know, a, a, an entirely new person in there? Yeah, I mean, I think efficiency is is at uh, the bottom line uh, uh, to that question. The upshot is, how do we, you know, how do we effectively uh, increase the quality of life uh, each day for residents? And that may sound cliche, but it is something that I wake up every day trying to do is how do I make somebody's life in the second ward and quite frankly throughout the city just make their life a little bit easier from when they go to their doorstep to work to pick up their kids to wherever they're going seeking entertainment uh, etc just let's make it a little bit better you did mention that you want to stay in the city that you don't have aspirations for higher office extending outside of the city but there are still quite a few offices available within the city do you have aspirations to go higher within the city, and if so, what and when? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's one election at a time. Um, I would be lying if I said I didn't have aspirations for, for a, a higher office, whether that be the, the mayoral uh, office, whether that's the comptroller, president of the board still is something that's intriguing to me. But at the moment, I think it is important to uh, stay dug in and entrenched to serve the people of the second ward. Um, I don't want to be disingenuous to them. Uh, it, the seat's not a stepping stone. I do think there's some good work we can get done in the next four years um, with a smaller board of aldermen. This job is now full-time on paper as well as, you know, it used to be just full-time kind of not on paper. I'm going to totally blank on the word I mean here. You also worked with U.S. Bank. Is that Mm -hmm. a role that you're going to continue in? Yes. I've worked in arrangement with my employer. Uh, I have done so in the past. Um, and there's no prohibition to that either with my employer and, quite frankly, the charter allows for aldermen and the mayor, believe it or not, to have other employment. Did not know that about the mayor. The alderman made sense to me because mm-hmm. it used to be a much lower paying job. I did not know that the mayor could have yeah. outside employment. And the charter sort of supersedes the the language that was in the, the, the you know, salary increase bill, which I, I'd still oppose. Uh, and I think there needs to be a, a rework to that, although that's very hard to undo. It's really hard to unring that bell at the moment. Uh, but the charter is, has been perfectly clear, and I think that's wisdom for the, the, the founding fathers and mothers of our city that have said, we want aldermen to seek other employment so they can bring their subject matter expertise to the board. I often worry about uh, full-time elected officials that are solely dedicated to that. I mean, there's, I, I, I agree there's two arguments to, to that, but I feel as if, if someone's bringing their everyday professional subject matter expertise in a different discipline than just a government employee or an elected official, it's better for the taxpayers. Give me an example of how your role in U.S. Bank and community development um, where you've maybe kind of shared that information with others and changed minds or, you know, it affects the way that you're drafting legislation as opposed to somebody who maybe doesn't know the ins and outs of financing those kind of projects. Yeah, I, I think it's important to note that community development and economic development projects are incredibly complicated. Uh, the capital stacks are not easy to come together. It's hard work. 
you have to gain the trust of the sponsors of a particular project, the trust of the community, uh, the, the support of the city uh, where the given project is, and you've got to move all those folks together uh, in a collaborative way that produces a project at the end of the day that, that um, creates tax revenue for cities, but also has a deeper community impact whether it's placemaking in a vacant um, storefront or reactivating a corner uh, that used to be a, a negative impact to the community. So those are all important projects. And, and that backdrop and continuing to stay on the cutting edge of that profession, I believe, makes me a better alderman for and, you know, is better for the city. Where in that space do you think is the biggest misunderstanding, either by your colleagues or by members of the community who are, you know, trying to push and leverage the city's use of economic development tools? Yeah, I think the biggest misunderstanding there is it takes time and it takes flexibility. And parties have to come to the table knowing that they're not going to get everything they need out of a particular project. And there's give and take on all sides, right? We could certainly give less subsidy. Uh, most real estate developers and uh, job creators can get by with a little less, um, but it's also important to know that they move on. They make quick decisions, and they want flexibility and a nimbleness uh, associated with local decision makers when it comes to land use, when it comes to a development project, when it comes to more comprehensive strategy around real estate and economic development. How much do you think what happened in the previous session and the corruption around development incentives maybe set back the conversation of really looking at development in the city and what's the best ways to use the tools and, you know, get everybody kind of in the same direction. Yeah, I think it's important that when you talk about uh, putting together uh, an economic development project and the first start has always been the Board of Aldermen, get your local political support, show that you have your local political support. I think what happened at the board um, uh, with the corruption cases around tax incentives, um, it, it's an opportunity for us to shift that focus, to say, let's put this in the hands of the technocrats, those folks at SLDC who live and breathe development, have a background and a profession, certainly need to seek uh, community input uh, from the older folks and the elected officials. But I think it's important that we put it in the hands of disciplined professional experts um, as the first stop instead of, well, go talk to your alderman and get support. I think there's a real opportunity here to, you know, completely change the dynamic and going forward it'll instill more trust in the system because I think that's the biggest um, you know complaint um, and the biggest reality whether it's optic or practical is that oh it's it's all sort of corrupt deals get get done on a in a you know <laughs> smoke-filled back room and the next thing you know uh, a real estate developer is is walking all the way to the bank with a check that the city wrote him which of course is not at all how it works uh, but I think that becomes the perception. Um, unfortunately, with what happened at the Board of Aldermen, with, with three aldermen being indicted, there's an opportunity to, to say, okay, well, let's make this, let's make this so it not only is optically, um, you know, uh, pleasing and virtuous, but also is, is practically virtuous and efficient for the city. You mentioned there being an opportunity for this. Opportunity is different than appetite. Is the appetite there? I think it is. I think it is. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly, look, I mean, I'm certainly one who has always supported economic development incentives because I know their true uh, value uh, when it comes to risk takers uh, looking to do a project. Um, so 
I'm willing to compromise and understand that there's an appetite there for do we dial that back or do we become efficient? And I think that's all real estate developers and community development folks want at the end of the day is a quick answer, right? Uh, and not sort of having a project sit in vacillation. What do you see as your role in this newly constituted Board of Aldermen? It's a great question. Um, I see myself continuing to care about the issues that I did when I first ran in 2017, which is let's have a city comprehensive strategy around economic development, growing our tax base. Uh, let's ensure that we have honest to God public safety. Now that's a, that means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but let's have public safety. Uh, and then let's also keep the, the full faith and credit of the city uh, intact. So, right, let's keep our finances in, in order and ensure that we're using financial discipline um, in everyday decision making. Where do you think that you align the most with some of your newer colleagues and especially on the executive branch level? And where do you think you will you know, ultimately have to agree to disagree on some issues? Yeah, I think uh, I'll answer that in reverse order. I think where we're going to agree to disagree is around uh, public safety. And I don't think that's a surprise to you or members in the media or, or my colleagues that, that I think a, a well-trained, well-staffed police force is the first step into, quite frankly, economic development, uh, opportunities, um, the social services that we need to provide. Um, it's really important that that be the the lead blocker, um, and particularly particularly around violent crime, right? Let's staff up for violent crime because we can fund all the anti-poverty initiatives that that um, that come up, that come forward, but teachers can't teach, kids can't learn, uh, you can't grocery shop when bullets are whizzing by your head, and your community is is truly you know a, a traumatic experience day in and day out. So let's stop the violence first. And then I think we can attack all of the, the and we have the resources to, to attack all of those anti-poverty initiatives that I think um, the mayor's office, the president uh, have as priorities. How do you respond to critics who would look at the budget and say, you know, police are getting funded. They're getting, I think, at least 50 percent of the general revenue goes toward these what you're calling public safety programs. And yet the needle still can't really move. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument that said, well, we, we could hire, you know, a thousand more officers tomorrow, and I'm not sure the city would be safer. I would disagree with that argument. Um, I think we, uh, quite frankly, need to spend a little bit more, but also look at how we're spending uh, around the public safety budget. And I think the, the upshot here is a recruitment apparatus needs to get well-funded, well-resourced, so that we're training and recruiting folks. Now, there's a lot of levers to pull and buttons to push in that statement I just said, because um, you can't just create people out of thin air. So the other thing we have to look at is, is the residency requirement impediment. Um, are there additional things uh, that besides the residence requirement uh, benefits that uh, someone would find virtuous in becoming a police officer? So all of that has to get worked out, particularly with the Department of Personnel. It's not just money. Money helps. Money is a good morale boost. Management and day-to-day -day quality of life uh, for officers and for all city employees uh, needs to improve. Has the state lifting of the residency requirement made a difference? You know, that was supposed to be one of the things where, you know, oh, lift the residency requirement and more people come in. And they're still struggling to fill officers. Yeah, I don't think it's permanent. 
um, right? It sort of has to get renewed, uh, uh, you know, when you allow an officer to not have residency. Um, I think you could, you would, if someone sees a more permanency to that, uh, I think there might be an opportunity that you would see more people want to come in and be police officers that they know that, because um, it, it sort of keeps your recruitment strategy in place if it's, if it's just simply permanent, I believe. You are one of, I believe, two eligible aldermen to chair committees who are not chairing committees. Was that a choice? Are you okay with this? Is this something that you expected to happen? It was unexpected, um, but look, the the rules changed. Uh, a new set of folks are in power. Uh, the Budget Committee and the Ways and Means Committee was my first choice and something I advocated uh, very strongly on. A lot of my colleagues nominated me for that, uh, but uh, the president and the leadership uh, decided a, a different direction. Um, but what I can tell you is that the the soon to be formed uh, special committee on red tape uh, will be chaired by yours truly. So I am excited to take that baton. I always feel like it's they give the, you know, the the most boring politicians, the good government uh, assignments. So but we're going to take it in stride for sure. I'm just thinking of the red tape commission that Al Gore, uh, you know, chaired when he was the vice president. It was, you know, how do we make government more efficient. But honestly, there's wins there, and there's a lot of important things to tackle in that committee. I mean, red tape and bureaucracy is a, uh, is a huge impediment to entrepreneurs, particularly where I think there's alignment with my colleagues and with the president's priorities and the mayor's priorities, quite frankly, around how do we grow uh, wealth, particularly how do we grow BIPOC and black wealth in this city? How do we encourage entrepreneurism? If you're having to go through eight different fees, 35 steps, and pay $7,000 just to open a restaurant in this town, when you can do it in Manhattan, New York, for $2,200 and the same number of fees, something's not quite right there. So tell me a little bit more about this Red Tape Commission. What's its charge? Right. Better government, cheaper, and the, uh, the impact being uh, a better quality of life for uh, startup businesses, for entrepreneurs, um, also, you know, and, and a return of value to the taxpayer. And again, I think there's, there's so many avenues to pursue when you say, well, we're going to clean up red tape in City Hall. It's important for us to, to get focused. And I think some of it is most startup businesses in any major city um, are restaurants, bars, uh, barbershops, uh, in-home, either in-home business, whether it's tutoring or... Um, uh, psychiatric practices or anything that's in in home home based business, those are all sectors where I think we can provide a more efficient process that doesn't take so much time and money for people uh, to create jobs and and serve customers, which are our residents and taxpayers. You mentioned the restaurant processes. What are some of the other pain points for any of these small business owners to? you know, create wealth and create employment in the city. Yeah, it's, it's, they don't want to spend six months getting a liquor license or have to hire a consultant or an attorney to get a liquor license. Restaurants want to be able to focus on driving their customers, you know, driving customers to their business. They want to order supplies, equipment, staff, you know, hire the appropriate amount of staff. And that takes time and capital. And if they're 
if they're diverted from that strategy, uh, simply trying to wade through City Hall and get the 35 different approvals that it requires to open up a restaurant and one that can serve alcohol, uh, we've got to take a step back and make that easier. There was an effort back in 2015 before you came to the board to make some adjustment in the the fees that had to be paid to get some of these permits, and it went nowhere because the two parts of government began to clash. How do you get all of these stakeholders on board who may want to protect their fiefdoms and getting you know in, towards the goal of creating capital and wealth and employment in the city? Yeah, I, it's not going to be easy. Uh, you, as you know, and you pointed out, right? We have county offices in the city that are creatures of state law. And they're accountable uh, simply to the voters and to state statutes. And uh, nothing via city ordinance can 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 change the way that they operate um, and the fees that they can levy. So there's going to have to be some honest conversations around let's make things better. Um, nobody's here to take responsibility away from you. But we have to grow as a city. And we know that creating business, small business particularly, it's the lifeblood of job creation, it's the lifeblood of employment and income for so many Americans and so many St. Louisans, that that has to be the North Star where we compromise on some things. I think there's also some wins away from the county offices too that, that we can do. I mean, particularly when we mentioned the, the liquor license process, that is sort of all city controlled and, and we owe it to ourselves to make that a heck of a lot easier. Dropping the signature requirement, perhaps. That is something I think that uh, that we should absolutely look at. Is a platen petition necessarily required? Uh, a lot of cities don't require that. So it, that is definitely something taking a look at. I mean, you can still get community input. Um, and I think there's a big distinction between uh, a liquor store and a restaurant, a bar, and a grill. Um, and let's let's be honest. I mean that w- we saw growth finally back to pre-pandemic levels in our restaurant tax, which means that people are seeking entertainment with restaurants um, and alcoholic beverages in this town, and that should be an industry of our economic development strategy that we uh, boast and continue to try to proliferate. I will say there is one thing about St. Louis and that it does punch above its weight in a lot of areas, and the food scene is absolutely one of those areas. Indeed. Indeed. It's a strength, and, and we should make it easier for, for more folks and more diverse entrepreneurs to, to um, you know, be part of that. I want to go back to the budget, which is a committee that you're going to serve on. As you look over the money coming in and going out, what are some of the potential pain points or areas of concern that you have? You know, we've heard what the budget division has to say. With your eye, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, at first glance, it's it's clear to see that inflation is playing a role in impacting the budget. Uh, where the city has contract, contract services, uh, where the city is paying for uh, equipment and items, those costs are all rising and going up. Um, it's particularly distressing, too, on the revenue side, seeing all what's uh, fluttering about with the earnings tax. Um, we know that there are six folks that have already uh, brought a lawsuit, and that is in um, that is in the courts now. And we know there's going to be more. I 
you know, the budget director might not want me to say this, but uh, the sky is falling scenario is we need to set aside probably 55 or $60 million to potentially um, settle any lawsuits associated with with the earnings tax, depending on how the case comes out. And these were individuals who had been getting right refunds in the past for working from home. That stopped during COVID-19, and they sued essentially over what they saw as a policy change. Correct. I mean, realistically speaking, though, I'll, I live in the county, work in the city. It's a hassle to get the refund for those two days. Do you think people really are going to go through the work to, you know, get the refund? It's not a simple process. And these are people who are highly motivated individuals, I think you could call them. Agreed. I think there are a lot of lawyers who see a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow who are working every day to motivate (laughs) <laughs> telecommuters and folks who have worked from home. So I think it's it's important when you when you serve on the city's budget committee to prepare for the worst. And I think that's something that we're going to have to pay attention to is is the revenue side. The expense side is is has always been pretty static. It's alarming now because of the inflationary environment that we are in. But the revenue side is really something we need to pay particular attention to. I'm encouraged that we have the marijuana sales tax uh, that will create some additional revenue straight to the general fund. So that's helpful. Uh, but we need to come up with more innovative solutions uh, on the revenue side and not just necessarily taxes, but are there other options that we can pursue that are a little more creative uh, user fees uh, potentially on any given uh, any given situation or project is, is something that, that can be helpful. Uh, just because uh, I'm worried about the attack the earnings tax is under at the moment. What are some of the other areas that you have as priorities in this legislative session? Sure. I think we need to get something settled on short-term rentals or the Airbnb yeah. uh, situation. That's just one platform, but short- short-term rentals is, is, is important. It's something I hear about almost weekly in my community. Of We don't want them to go away. We understand that it's the sort of the demand economy, but it needs to be regulated in some fashion, right? Whether it's a an inspection every year or every other year, just to make sure that the welfare and general safety is, is taken care of, I think is one important step. I want people to be entrepreneurial with their homes. In most cases, someone's home is their largest investment uh, into the economy. And let's let them rent out a room or two, but I just think it's, it's important that um, safety be the driver there in terms of the regulation associated with it. I know the mayor mentioned short-term rentals in her state of the city, so I hope that there's some alignment there. I know that the former alderwoman in Gracia worked very close on a draft that was about to become a submitted bill, um, and it fizzled, and I think that's still uh, on the mantle of the president's office to, to pursue that, and that's a quality of life issue. Um, other things I think that are important is to sort out um, is the NFL money. I've worked, already started working closely with the president's office and the mayor's office on what are those ideas? What does that process look like? Um, and I, you know, I, I will give credit to the mayor and the president and the board in the sense that they say we need to have some community feedback. I would agree with that. Let's have a process where we hear from uh, the community and residents. I certainly have my own thoughts, but I think everybody at the end of the day is um, resonant with the fact that let's try to live off the interest as long as we can, right? Let's put things in place that aren't necessarily one-time hits, but um, we can, you know, see 
10, 20 years from now still being in place and making a difference. To me, you know, this, this may sound tongue-in-cheek, but I think we should do everything the opposite of what the NFL stands for. <laughs> <laughs> and now, depending on if you're a National Football League fan or not, you know, I guess you, you can agree to disagree with me, but um, we know the NFL is a club of billionaires, right? Um, it's a lot of white wealth. So maybe we can create a pot of money where we're uh, incentivizing uh, BIPOC and black-led small businesses in, in this town with some of that money. I think that's, that's something that would be right um, a virtuous path to pursue. Also public infrastructure. Often when the NFL team, team comes in, the infrastructure that's associated with getting ready for the stadium, the public subsidies associated with them, both academia and politicians have pretty much agreed that there's not a great return on investment when we build a big stadium and have to uh, make the infrastructure around it improve. Uh, we don't necessarily see a return on that investment because folks seek entertainment either through football or they'll seek it in other means. Um, so I'm not sure that it's always just, you know, you lose out necessarily for not having that. So public infrastructure needs to be, uh, I think, a priority associated with uh, the NFL settlement money. Investment in North City and disinvested neighborhoods, for sure, uh, should be, I think, you know, you know, a big driver associated with those funds. Also, I think public safety and public employees. I, if you set up a series of trusts around, here's a public employees and public safety trust fund, and we will ensure that we can give a 2 or 3% uh, raise year over year uh, because we're investing the money in a way that, that allows us to do that. Uh, brings value to your employees, gets a better product to the taxpayers by way of services. Where are you on maybe finally getting some of those changes to the structure and governance of the firefighter pension systems? Where, if I'm remembering correctly, you want to bring them all under and governed by the same board. There's two systems, one for those who were employed prior to, I believe, 2013, one going forward. It's been something you've wanted to do for the past couple of years. The maths haven't math. Where yeah. are you on this on this session? Well, thanks for bringing that up, Rachel. It's an important issue to me. I mean, uh, you know, our first responders, particularly those who live, you know, who live around danger when they're on the clock every day, um, I, I want them to have financial security. Um, I want them to feel as if that they they have representatives that are firefighters, former firefighters, and that employees really control the destiny of their pension system. Now that doesn't mean you play, you know, the stock market in a reckless fashion, uh, but that you just, as you mentioned, that you bring the composition of the boards who has the ability to hire the actuaries, hire the financial money managers, um, hire the auditors and the accountants and the attorneys, uh, that you can consolidate those costs and have one strategy with both systems, right? We, we forget we have a old firefighter pension system and a new firefighter pension system. But if you have the same board managing the financial direction of those two systems, you get better buying power um, and you're able to also diversify your portfolio a lot better. That's part of the conversation that I that tended to get lost the two times that we tried to bring um, that ordinance you know, to the forefront. You will see it again. Uh, I think folks may have Oldenburg fatigue with that particular issue. <laughs> so I think you might see one of my colleagues uh, pick up the baton and, and run with that issue uh, because I don't think it's going away. It's, it's about taking care of employees. And if we say we want to 
help our employees, particularly those who, who work in a very dangerous job each day, um, it's important. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. We were speaking with Second Ward Alderman Tom Oldenburg. Tom, any last thoughts? No, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I think uh, I, I remain hopeful for the new Board of Aldermen uh, that has taken session now two weeks. Until next time, so long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.